uh, Phil Buckner, who will be well known to most of you, um, speaking on the American Civil War and Canadian Confederation. Uh, Phil is Professor Emeritus at the University of New Brunswick and an honorary professorial fellow at the UCL Institute of the Americas. He received his BA from the University of Toronto, PhD from the University of London, and then returned to Canada to teach Canadian history at the University of New Brunswick, where he uh, became a full professor. He helped to establish the University of New Brunswick as one of the centres, if not the centre, for the study of Atlantic uh, Canada, creating and editing uh, the KDMCS, the Journal of the History of the Atlantic Region, which is still going strong. Moved to London in 1999, for many years was the director of the Canadian Studies Programme at the Commonwealth, uh, at the Institute of Commonwealth Studies, uh, where it was pretty much the main, if not the only, Canadian Studies Programme in London for, for at least several years. Written extensively on Atlantic Canada and the British world, and is now working with exquisite timing on the creation of the Canadian Constitution, 1864, 1867. So we'll no doubt be in demand uh, in um, 2017 for that anniversary. Phil. In the 1950s and 1960s, five Canadian historians and one American defined the basic themes which would dominate the history of Confederation, at least in English Canada, for several decades. The three historians with the widest influence were C.P. Stacey, W.L. Morton, and Donald Creighton. Creighton was particularly influential. He had numerous graduate students at the University of Toronto, one of whom, Peter Waite, contributed a major study of the life and times of Confederation, politics, newspapers, and the Union of British North America. In my view, still the best book on the topic. In addition to a full-length study in 1964 of the Road to Confederation, which in its day was a bestseller, Creighton also published a two-volume study of John A. MacDonald, which argued that MacDonald had played the central role in the creation of Confederation, while well, one of his colleagues at the University of Toronto, J.M.S. Careless, contributed a two-volume biography of George Brown, whom Careless described as the true instigator of Confederation. All of these studies insisted on the critical importance of the American Civil War and the creation of Canada, as did Robin Winks, an American historian, in his study, Canada and the United States, the Civil War Years, still the best book written on the subject. There were, of course, major differences between the five Canadian historians who did the most to shape what became the standard interpretation of the making of Confederation. Stacy, Creighton, and Morton were products of an earlier generation. All three were born in the decade before the First World War. Stacy and Creighton were born and grew up in Toronto, a city so British in its loyalties and Protestant in its culture at this time that it was often called the Belfast of Canada. In school and at the University of Toronto, both men would have learned a history of Canada that focused on the contribution of the American loyalists to the creation of Canada, the gallant resistance put up by Upper Canadians to the American invasions during the War of 1812, and by their descendants to the Fenians, and the noble work of the Fathers of Confederation. Morton's education would have been little different, even though he was born in Gladstone, Manitoba, a town settled mainly by immigrants from Ontario, and was educated at the University of Manitoba. All three men, Stacy, Creighton, Morton, all three men studied at Oxford. All three men had family roots in Canadian soil that went back generations. But all three believed in the importance of the British connection and of British culture and British institutions in the shaping of the Canadian national identity. British Americans, Creighton wrote in The Road to Confederation, quote, thought of themselves as British subjects, whose title was not in the slightest diminished by their distance from the center of empire. Stacy, Morton, and Creighton never denied that Canada was essentially a North American society, but they insisted that its North American character had been tempered by the British institutions and traditions that Canada had adopted as its own and by the enduring ties with Britain. In an article published in 1962, a very important article, much neglected, called British North America and a Continent in Dissolution, 1861-1871, Morton insisted, insisted that in 1861, British America had, quote, its moment of truth. It emerged as a community with its own will and destiny. 1861 is the, the uh, crisis of the Trent Affair. The inhabitants of British North America might be American, he wrote, 
but they were determined to be American in their own way, British American. In a sense, all three men belonged to the last generation of British Americans. As the British connection unraveled in the 1960s, and English Canadians began to reinvent their national identity with a new flag and a new national anthem and a commitment to, a bicultural, to biculturalism and then multiculturalism. Now, J.M.S. Careless and Peter Waite, the other two of the five Canadians, were born after the First World War, both in Toronto, though Waite grew up in the Maritimes in British Columbia. Both men studied under Donald Creighton. Careless as an undergraduate before going to Harvard and then returning to become Creighton's colleague at the University of Toronto, and Waite as a PhD student. Careless and Waite came of age in a Canada that was changing rapidly, particularly in the 1960s. But they were less disturbed than the older historians by the changes taking place. Careless made very clear in a number of books and articles, including his biography of George Brown, that the culture of Upper Canada, Ontario, had been shaped by a mass, the massive flow of British immigration into Canada in the 19th century while Wade also repeatedly stressed the importance of Canada's historic links with the United Kingdom. But neither man was obsessed with the unraveling of the British connection in the 1960s. Their fears of Canada's absorption into the United States were more muted, though certainly not absent. They were more sympathetic to the demands of French Canadians for constitutional change, and they were comfortable with the liberal nationalism of the later 1960s. But one thing Careless and Wade did share with Stacy, Morton, and Creighton, and that was the belief that the 1860s marked a turning point in the founding of the Canadian nation, and that Confederation would not have taken place in that decade, certainly not in the form that it did, without the fears aroused by the American Civil War. Uh, that sounds like it's an old interpretation, but it was new in the 1960s. Brian McKillop McKill and Paul Romney have argued that, quote, a new paradigm of English-Canadian historical self-perception took shape from the 1950s to the 1970s. At its heart was the belief that the English-Canadian sense of national identity is, quote, rooted in the consciousness of not being American. Now, this paradigm was hardly new, but it is certainly true that as the British identity of English-Canadians was gradually eroded during this period, English-Canadian historians placed greater emphasis on the purely negative theme of not being American. It was a theme that suited the mood of the 1960s and 1970s, as a growing number of Canadian scholars became concerned with the dangers of increased integration of the Canadian economy with the American and the impact of American popular culture on Canada. Ironically, however, by the 1990s, Canadians gradually became less concerned about the implications of continentalism. In the 1960s and 1970s, the doyen of Canadian military historians was undoubtedly Charles Perry Stacey, whose belief in Canada's British roots and suspicion of American intentions shines through a number of his books. But by the 1980s, his replacement as Canada's leading military historian was Jack Granitstein. Although Granitstein had flirted with socialism and anti-Americanism in his youth, he increasingly came to believe that Canada's only option was to accept American economic and cultural dominance. In 1997, in a book called Yankee Go Home, Canadians and Anti-Americanism, Granistein declared that anti-Americanism, anti quote, is almost always employed as a tool by Canadian political elites bent on preserving or enhancing their power. It was largely the Tory way of keeping pro-British attitudes uppermost in the Canadian psyche. And Granistein called on Canadians to abandon their loyalist inheritance which perpetuated a blind hatred of the United States and an undesirable connection with Great Britain. In fact, the revised view of American intentions towards Canada that Granitstein called for was already underway in the field of American-Canadian relations in the 1980s. Reginald C. Stewart, in United States Expansionism and British North America, 1775 to 1871, Reginald Stewart argued that Canadians have consistently exaggerated the threat posed by American expansionism. Stewart's interpretation was echoed in Gordon Stewart's, the names are spelled differently, in Gordon Stewart's The American Response to Canada since 1776. Gordon and Stewart admitted that, quote, an incipient imperialist ideology with regard to Canada that existed <clears throat> in the United States since the War of 1812, based upon the view that the United States had the right to dominate the North American continent. 
But he also argued that, quote, it is unproductive to classify American policy with respect to Canada as imperialism. As I'm going to show in a moment, I'm not convinced that it's unproductive, but anyway. Both books were right on one point. American policy toward Canada before the 1860s was shaped by the continuing, if exaggerated, fears about British intentions in North America. Indeed, historians of Anglo-American Anglo relations, which unfortunately few Canadian historians ever read, historians of Anglo-American relations have increasingly stressed that there was nothing inevitable about Anglo-American friendship in the 19th century. In Unfinished Revolution, the early American Republic in a, in a British world, Sam Haynes points out that well into the 19th century, America remained in some respects a cultural and economic satellite of the British Empire. Many Americans resented this dependency, and American governments could therefore draw from a deep wellspring of anti-British sentiment that tended to frame British diplomatic activities in the Western Hemisphere in conspiratorial terms. Now, it is worth remembering that Britain remained the dominant power in the Western Hemisphere until the middle of the 19th century, not the United States. Even thereafter, the American government remained fearful of the damage that Britain would be able to inflict upon American shipping and coastal communities along the Atlantic seaboard in the event of another war, which is why the American government spent vast sums of money on coastal fortifications in this period. But Britain had no desire for war with the United States. This was not because the British ruling class felt any great sympathy for the United States or a sense of kinship with the Americans. British attitudes towards the United States remained ambivalent throughout the 19th century. Another war was avoided because British policy in North America was primarily defensive. It sought to hold on to what it had, but it did not seek to expand its territorial possessions. During the later 1840s and the 1850s, the antagonism between Britain and the United States did begin to weaken. Yet the, yet the American Civil War reversed this trend and issued in a, t a tense period of Anglo-American and therefore American-Canadian relations. In a recent study, the most recent, Philip E. Myers plays down the threat of war during this period. The only commotion along the border, he claims, was, quote, by desperate Confederates trying to sway the British against the North. Their antics backfired and produced triangular cooperation. In Myers' view, mutual self-interest driven by international finance characterized the Anglo-American relationship after the Civil War. And in the interests of Anglo-American cooperation, the British government compelled its British North American colonies to create a new federal union which was left primarily to fend for itself. There are so many errors in that statement, I'm only going to be able to do, deal with a few of them. <laughs> Yet Meyer's argument sits uneasily with the abundant evidence that during the Civil War, Britain and the United States still viewed each other with suspicion and distrust, and that war was a very real possibility, only narrowly averted during the Trent Crisis of 1861, and certainly a possibility even after the collapse of the Confederacy, in fact, particularly after the collapse of the Confederacy. He particularly underestimates the degree of anger aroused in the American North by Britain's recognition of the South as a belligerent power. One popular marching song along the Northern forces in 1861, sung to the tune of Yankee Doodle, declared, Secession first he would put down, wholly and forever, and afterwards from Britain's crown he Canada would sever. Now, Myers also underestimates the continued commitment of the British government to defend the three and a half million subjects of Queen Victoria in British North America. It is true that successive British governments wanted to reduce their military expenditures and that they welcomed Confederation partly because they assumed that the Canadians would now bear a larger share of the expense of defending themselves. But in July 1864, during a debate in the Cabinet, Palmerston declared that the idea of abandoning British North America might make abstract sense, but it is not the opinion of England, and it is not mine. Palmerston's position was that if the United States wanted to attempt to annex Britain's Canadian colonies, they, quote, were welcome to try. The United Kingdom was a far more powerful nation than the Confederate States had ever been. After the American Civil War, as a sign of this continuing commitment, the British government began to re-fortify Quebec, and although it withdrew its garrison at Quebec in 1871, it specifically declared that this decision was in no way intended to alter or diminish the obligations which exist on both sides in case of a foreign war. And there's only 
one country there could be involved in a foreign war. Britain retained, also retained a naval base in Halifax and later established one in British Columbia. When Canada sent a force to the Red River in 1869 to suppress a rebellion in Manitoba, Macdonald insisted that the force should be composed of both British regulars and Canadian militia to show, quote, that England and Canada are acting in complete accord and unity in the retention of British North America under British sovereignty. And after the cancellation of the Reciprocity Treaty in 1866, Canada was sufficiently confident of British support to begin arresting American fishing vessels trespassing in Canadian inshore waters, even though the British were horrified when they did it. The problem with much of the Canadian literature on continental defense is that it focuses rather narrowly on the ability of the British forces stationed in Canada and of the Canadian militia to defend Canada in the event of another Anglo-American war. These forces, particularly the militia, might have been useful in protecting Canada against filibustering activities, but no one really doubted that in the event of war they could only delay an American victory on land and perhaps inflict some damage on the invaders to make them realize the cost. Ultimately, however, the, the defense of British North America depended in the 1860s, as it had always done, on the ability of the Royal Navy to act as a deterrent to American aggression. And it was more than able to do that if necessary. Given the trade of value with the United States and growing political instability in Europe, it did make sense for the British to reach an accommodation with the United States through negotiations which led to the Treaty of Washington in 1871. But the mutual antagonism between the two countries did not dissipate overnight. Indeed, as C.P. Stacy once noted, it is doubtful whether any of the principal actors in the negotiations in 1871 truly appreciated how important a landmark the Treaty of Washington would become in retrospect. In other words, it's been blown up. Looking back as a critical moment, it was a critical moment, but it wasn't so clear at the time that it would be such a critical moment. Now, not only does the recent work on American-Canadian relations in the 19th century downplay the degree of antipathy between the United States and Great Britain, it embodies an older and largely discredited view of United States expansionism. From the 1950s to the 1980s, American historians tended to view the United States as an empire of liberty and the spread of American institutions across the continent as a benign, indeed a beneficial, a beneficial process, since American expansionism was based on a desire to oust all the Europeans from the North American continent. <clears throat> Manifest destiny was therefore anti-colonial, not imperial in a tent. Very few American historians believe that today. The new consensus is that the United States was an empire from the moment it was founded, and not really so different either in its goals or in its methods from the European empires it sought to supplant. Historians of American-Canadian relations from the 1990s to the present therefore appear locked in a time warp in their continuing assistance that the 19th, in the 19th century one cannot describe American policy towards Canada as imperialistic. Actually, I just read a new book in Ottawa. I started to read a new book in Ottawa on American-Canadian relations by Aziz, I forget, which reflects this older interpretation, still continues to reflect this older interpretation. Certainly, British Americans were not wrong in the 1860s in fearing that the American North had designs upon what was left of the British Empire in North America. Nor were the historians of Confederation in the 1960s wrong in believing that this fear was one of the major catalysts leading to Confederation. These fears grew steadily as it gradually became apparent that the South was going to lose. Probably the American newspaper most quoted in the Canadian press was the New York Herald, which was vehemently anti-British. And the most quoted British newspaper, the London Times, which was vehemently anti-Northern. From both sources, British Americans absorbed the dangers of a Northern victory British-American attitudes towards the American Civil War were deeply ambivalent. Very few British-Americans supported the institution of slavery, which had ceased to exist in the British North American colonies even before it was formally abolished throughout the British Empire in 1833. But the failure of the American government to abolish slavery during the first two years of the war and the fear of an Anglo-American war aroused by the Trent Affair led to growing antagonism towards the North. W.L. Morton, a much underrated historian, 
W.L. Morton placed the blame for the development of anti-Northern sentiment directly on, quote, the anti-British tone of much of the Northern press and its brusque assumption that British North America would be easily conquered, pointing out that British America had no other reason for being anti-Northern. It was anti-slavery. It was Northern to a degree in its social instincts and its political behavior. And whatever the sophisticated said, it did not welcome the rise of an independent South that would keep the North in check. Yet even those British Americans who continued to support the North were frightened by the prospects of what a Northern victory might mean for the British North American colonies. These fears were expressed over and over and over and over again in newspapers across British North America, at the Charlottetown and Quebec conferences in September and October 1864, and in the debates that followed over the Quebec resolutions in the various British North American legislatures throughout 1864 and 1865. In the aftermath, even after the war was over, in the aftermath of the American Civil War, anti-British sentiment in the United States remained high. The most explosive issue was the Alabama claims, which I don't have time to explain, but if you want to, I will after. Um, and some Americans rec recommended dropping the Alabama claims in return for Canada, you know, instead of being compensated to take Canada. In retrospect, the idea that Britain would agree to hand over their colonies was a total illusion, fueled by the mistaken belief that the British had lost interest in their North American possessions, and by the even more mistaken belief that many Canadians were eager to cut their ties with the British Empire. But it was an illusion widely held in the northern states. As James Young, a Canadian politician, found to his horror, a liberal politician, and James Young found to his horror when he, along with representatives from all of the British North American colonies, attended the, quote, largest commercial convention ever to take place on North American soil at Detroit on 11 July 1865. Many of those presents, like yeah, President Young, had strongly supported the North, including Joseph Howe of Nova Scotia, who was also there. Howe pointed out that many young Canadians had shed their blood for the Northern cause and noted that his own son, had served under General Sheridan. Howe's words were met by the American audience with tumultuous applause. But shortly afterwards, J.W. Potter, the United States Consul General for British North America, rose to declare that Canadians favored annexation and that they would ask for admission to the Union within two years after the end of reciprocity in 1866. Potter's speech was followed by American cheers and Canadian expressions of dissent. Like many Canadians, Young was a strong supporter of reciprocity. Yet years later, in, 1930, in 1902, Young called the cancellation a blessing in disguise, for it failed, failed to produce the slightest annexation sentiment and, in fact, helped to promote confederation. In the aftermath of the Civil War, Canadians continued to fear that the Americans had designed on the vast but sparsely settled Northwest Territories. Now, it was never very likely in the later 1860s that the American government would precipitate a war with Britain to acquire those territories. But individual Americans had engaged in filibustering activities in the past, and there was considerable support in Minnesota for such activities in the West in the 1870s. Indeed, the Fenian raids, which the American government was slow to suppress, showed there was no guarantee that filibustering raids would not occur again. It is debatable how much impact the Fenian raids had upon the movement towards confederation. But as C.P. Stacey argued, they certainly helped to strengthen a sense of British-American, soon to be described as Canadian, nationalism. The chorus of one of the anti-Fenian songs of the period proclaimed, Shout, 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 ye loyal Britons. Cheer up, let the rabble come. For beneath the Union Jack, we will drive the Fenians back and will fight for our beloved Canadian homes. The most significant importance of the American Civil War, oh sorry, the most significant challenge to the importance of the American Civil War and to the history of the 1960 has come from an imperial historian. Jed Martin's Britain and the Origins of Canadian Confederation there are only a handful of passing references to the American Civil War. Indeed, Martin attempts to show that the arguments in favor of Confederation advanced by the supporters of Confederation at the time do not stand up to crit critical scrutiny. Dismissing the belief that confederation was the answer to continental defense as implausible, and the desire to create a transcontinental nation is unimportant because, quote, 
Westward expansion was not envisaged as a major immediate task. That word's immediate. It's important. Task for the new dominion. He concludes the Confederation was not the most obvious answer to the continental challenges of 1864. Quote, Indeed, if the overwhelming priorities were the need to secure a larger market, better communications, and to put an end to the threat of American invasion, the obvious solution, certainly by 1865, would have been to seek annexation to the United States. Even, this is still all the, this is all the quote, even if the provinces preferred union among themselves, the logic of overwhelming American economic and military power pointed to confederation on American terms under United States protection. But is it not somewhat bizarre to argue that the logical solution to the continental challenges of the 1860s was the one solution that British Americans were determined above all to avoid? If one accepts as a given that the primary concern of British Americans was to ensure Canada's survival as a British colony in the face of American expansionism, what MacDonald described in 1864 as, quote, a unanimous feeling of willingness to run all the hazards of war if war must come, rather than lose the connection between the mother country and these colonies. Then the commitment to relieve Britain of some of the costs of colonial defense and to expand west as soon as possible, not necessarily immediately, but as soon as possible, make the arguments confederation look both plausible and necessary as a solution for the changing balance solution to the changing balance of power on the North American continent. Martin is particularly critical of the appeal to nationality made by the Fathers of Confederation, dismissing it as a useful rhetorical device. He is not alone in his cynicism. Most contemporary Canadian historians see nationalism as a regressive and undesirable phenomenon that leads to xenophobia and racism. They are not much interested, indeed many are positively adverse, to the study of the formation and evolution of the Canadian nation-state preferring to focus on Canadians' more limited identities or their transnational and borderland connections. Interestingly, there's now a huge and growing literature dealing with the impact of the American Civil War on the evolution of Canadian, uh, of American nationalism. It is a literature that has been and continues to be almost totally ignored by Canadian historians. The centennial of Confederation in 1967 saw the production of a host of scholarly books and articles on the making of Confederation the forthcoming 150th anniversary has so far produced one popular work. Canadian of Confederation, of course, was not a typical experiment in nation building. Most of the new nations which emerged in the 18th and 19th centuries were created by people who sought to secede from some larger empire. Clearly, this was not the case with Canada. In fact, as the Fathers of Confederation made clear, their desire was to strengthen, not weaken, the unbiblical cord with the mother country. Partly this reflected the insecurity that British Americans felt in the aftermath of the American Civil War. If they were to be successful in their ambition to compete with the Americans and create a transcontinental nation, they knew that they would need British support. But even after they had succeeded in their immediate objectives and created a transcontinental nation, um, a dominion that stretched from sea unto sea, and they no longer had any real fear of American annexationism. Indeed, even after Canada became effectively independent in 1931, English Canadians remained proud of being a part of the British Empire and were eager to hold on to their status as British subjects. Various ex factors explain this enthusiasm, but the most important is demographic. One of the myths propagated the by the multi-volume Carnegie series on the relations between Canada and the United States, which was published in the Interwar Years, was the myth of the intermingling of the Canadian-American peoples. If you look at the whole period since the American Revolution, there has indeed been considerable flow of migration both ways across the border. But in any given period, the flow of migrants tended to be one way, and usually from Canada to the United States. In fact, after 1815, the flow of immigration was overwhelmingly from British North America to the United States. During the 1840s and 1850s, a steady stream of British Americans headed across the border, some to the growing industrial towns in the Northeast, others seeking land or work in the American West. By 1860, around half a million British Americans, people who had been born in British America, lived in the United States, and the number would continue to grow. 
Indeed, between 35,000 and 50,000 British Americans fought in the American Civil War, mainly in the Northern forces. Some were motivated by pure idealism, anti-slavery anti sentiment. Some were young men seeking adventure. Some were essentially mercenaries. A few were effectively tricked or forced into volunteering. About 2,500 fighting for the Union were black residents of British North America. But the majority of the British Americans, perhaps as many as 70%, were men who had already emigrated to the United States before the war. Most of them had already become American citizens and had voted in an American election. Many of them signed up in the early years of the war for the same reason as their American neighbors and friends, to show their commitment to their adopted community, state, and nation. British American might have been an accurate description of where they were born, but not necessarily of their national allegiance or identification. For most of those British Americans who served in the Union forces, whatever the reasons for enlisting, the war accelerated the transformation of their national identity from British American to American. One can see the change even during the war, as the language and letters from British Americans who had crossed the border to enlist gradually began to change. Letters written with the pronoun I gradually changed to we. The United States became my country. The government of the United States, our government, and the Confederates, rebels. After the war, most of these British American, most of the British American veterans, the vast majority of the British American veterans, remained in the United States. There were only a handful of Civil War veterans organizations in Canada, the largest in Hamilton, Ontario, which numbered over 100 at its peak, and all the rest were a lot smaller. In the late 19th century and for most of the 20th century, the story of the Canadians who fought in the American Civil War was lost until, resurrect, uh, until resurrected by Robin Winks and other more popular writers. But that is because the future of those who fought in the Civil War lay in their country of adoption, not in the country they had abandoned. In Canada, it was the militia who fought the Fenians or who put down the rebellions in the West who were honored and remembered, not those who had fought in what was, after all, a foreign war. Although there was a steady stream of native-born British North Americans to the United States from the 1840s to the 1860s, there was also a steady flow of immigrants from across the Atlantic to the British North American colonies, as indeed there was to the United States. But migration to the United States came from a wide variety of sources, whereas migration to British North America came overwhelmingly from one source, the United Kingdom. All the permanent inhabitants of British North America in the 1860s were British subjects. Whether they identified themselves as Canadians or Nova Scotians or Prince Edward Islanders or talked about the colony in which they lived as our country, the English-speaking population was using shorthand for we are British subjects living in the United Province, Canada, or we are British subjects living in Nova Scotia, etc. They were not indicating a sense of national identity. Only the Canadiens, who formed about a third of the population of what would become the Dominion of Canada in 1867, had a clear sense of being part of a distinctive nation. But the sense of forming part of a distinctive culture within the empire was growing among the English-speaking population. And the term British American, which implied a broader, though still embryonic, national identity, was becoming increasingly popular in the 1850s and 1860s. Nonetheless, the vast majority of the English-speaking inhabitants of British North America in the 1860s would have defined themselves as British. Indeed, as racial language kept into use, crept into use in the, in the later 19th century as members of the British race, of course, all racial definitions are by their very nature confused and arbitrary since they lack any scientific basis. Most mid-19th century British Americans tended to conflate race and ethnicity and to use race, nation, and people as if the terms were synonymous. And those who used the term British or British race fluctuated between a circumscribed ethnic definition that focused on ancestry in the United States, and that sometimes included and sometimes excluded the Irish, and a broader but civic nationalist definition that could be extended to include those of non-British ancestry who had adopted British values. That's a classic definition to an ethnic and civic sense of identity. But whether they had either, whether they had either the, an ethnic, essentially ethnic, or a softer civic definition of their identity, the English-Canadian majority in 1867 thought of the Dominion Canada 
is essentially a British nation with one large cultural minority, the Canadian, that have been guaranteed specific linguistic and religious rights in the federal parliaments and courts and in the province of Quebec where that minority formed the majority. Now in one of his many much neglected articles, W.L. Morton wrote that, quote, the great political decision of Canadian politics in the Victorian age was not to confederate, but to be British rather than American. The decision was made at bottom in the crushing of the rebellions of 1837 and in the colonial office's resolution to give Canada, as Simcoe had not, the very image and transcript of the British Constitution, the most efficient, modern, and prestigious of the day. Now, in the 1840s and 50s, not all British Americans viewed the, the existing constitution of their colony in these, in these terms. Some sought to give the people more control over the colonial assemblies by pushing for the secret ballot, an expanded electorate, and elected upper houses. Prince Edward Island, with a small electorate composed overwhelmingly of small-scale farmers and tenants, was the most radical of the British North American colonies adopting universal male suffrage in 1853 and an elected legislative council in 1862. The British North American colonies, nonetheless, were more innovative, more willing to consider radical political change, and more radical, sorry, let me try that again, more willing to consider radical political changes that were associated with a Republican system of government in the United States, you know, mass electorate, elected uh, chambers, um, were, then they were more you know, receptive to these ideas from the United States than is usually presumed. But in the 1860s, the enthusiasm for these reforms began to change. Indeed, Nova Scotia abolished universal male suffrage and restored a property qualification in 1863, reversing a decision it made earlier. And one of the last acts of the Assembly of the United Province of Canada, before it disappeared, was to introduce higher property, higher property qualifications for voting which automatically became the qualifications for voting in the elections to the new House of Commons in Ottawa. Moreover, the Fathers of Confederation took the decision at the Quebec Conference that the members of the second chamber in the new federal parliament, the Senate, would be appointed, not elected. Now, it's hard not to believe that these decisions did not have something to do with the American Civil War. In the antebellum period, the period before the war in the 1840s and 50s, Democrats everywhere looked to America as a beacon of hope. But not everyone was convinced that the American form of Republican democracy was the best way to ensure fair government under the rule of law and to protect individual freedom and the right to property, and certainly not the best system to create a stable form of government that would promote economic growth and prosperity. Within Britain, there was a growing, though far from universal, consensus that an excess of democracy was responsible both for the rise of Napoleon III in France and the Civil War in America. This attitude reaffirmed a belief in the superiority of the British system of government and, quote, an abiding commitment to a constitutionalism centered on parliament and the monarchy. These attitudes crossed the Atlantic and affected the deliberations of the British North Americans as they created the constitutional structure of what would become the Dominion of Canada. In all countries, the, right of the, majority, the rights of the majority take, take care of themselves, MacDonald proclaimed during the Confederation debates. But it is only in countries like England, enjoying constitutional liberty and safe from the tyranny of a single despot or of an unbridled democracy, that the rights of the minorities are regarded. By 1864, only Prince Edward Island retained universal male suffrage and had an elective legislative council. And one of the arguments used by anti-Confederates in Prince Edward Island against the proposed union with the mainland colonies was that, quote, we would be at the mercy of those who do not think as we do on the issue of parliamentary representation. Now, the Fathers of Confederation believed in popular control over the government, but they were not Democrats. They did not believe in the sovereignty of the people, but in the sovereignty of a parliament that represented the diverse interests in the state, particularly the interests of property holders, and that was checked by an upper house. They believed that the British system of constitutional monarchy better protected individual liberty and individual rights than the Republican system of the United States, and that the American Civil War was abundant evidence of that fact. 
Now, the 1960s historians of Confederation also believed that the fathers of Confederation drew another lesson from the American Civil War, the dangers of a decentralized federal union. They argued that the delegates at the Quebec Conference accepted the need for a federal union, partly because the French Canadians would never have agreed to join a legislative union based upon the principle of representation on the basis of population, and partially because many Maritimers wished to retain their provincial assemblies, but that nonetheless the Fathers of Confederation sought to ensure the predominance of the new federal authority. In his recent introduction to The Road to Confederation, which has been reprinted recently, Donald Wright contends, and in his recent biography of Creighton, a very good biography, even though I disagree with a lot of it, Donald contends that the historians of the 1960s reached this conclusion about centralization because they were committed centralists who had lived through the 1930s and believed in the need for a strong national government. But, Wright argues, a new academic consensus has emerged since the 1960s, which maintains that the country has been premised on provincial autonomy all along, and that the fathers of confederation did not intend to create a centralized federation. The only problem is that this new academic consensus rests upon some very shaky historical foundations. This is particularly true of Paul Romney's Getting It Wrong, How Canadians Got It Wrong in Imperiled Confederations, where he argues that the great failure of English-Canadian historians has been to treat confederation as, quote, essentially an exercise in nation-building rather than a plan designed to gratify the yearnings of French Canadians and upper Canadians alike to be masters in their own house. In Romney's view, the leading upper Canadian reformers had never been centralists, and they ensured that the Quebec resolutions provided for a decentralized constitution. Now, Romney admits that George Brown did emphasize the need for a strong central government at the Quebec conference but declares that was purely to reassure those who were concerned a federation would lead to weak government. Brown, he argues, never meant to imply that the local government would not enjoy local autonomy because autonomy for Upper Canada had been the guiding principle of his political life. In fact, of course, it hadn't. The guiding principle of Brown's political life had never been autonomy for Upper Canada. It had been justice for Upper Canada. What had frustrated Brown and the Reform Party was that while Upper Canada had a larger and more rapidly growing population than Lower Canada, Upper Canadian reformers spent most of their time in opposition. The solution was simple, representation by population. Only when it became clear that Rep by Pop was unachievable did Brown begin to promote the idea of a weak federal union of the two Canadas. And he was fairly easily converted to supporting the concept of a larger union of British North America if it, so long as it included a commitment to proportional representation. Rep by pop was Brown's sine qua non, a principle he would not bend even slightly by giving one extra member to PEI to alleviate the fear of Islanders that they would be swamped in the new federal House of Commons. A fervent opponent of slavery, Brown insisted that what had destroyed the American Constitution was not states' rights, but the South's determination to retain slavery. And he did not believe that the American government was likely to go beyond aggressive rhetoric in its desire to annex the British North American colonies. Yet he also feared that the Americans are now a warlike people. The desire to send a clear message to the United States of Canada's determination to retain ties with Britain, the task of establishing control over and settling the West, the need to replace the British troops, which were gradually being drawn, withdrawn with a local defense force, which could, do, could deter filibusters like the Fenians, and a desire to increase Canada's influence in London and Washington, persuaded Brown, as it did most of the Fathers of Confederation, of the need for a strong federal uh, government, and provincial governments limited in their ability to thwart the efforts of the federal government at nation-building. Now, Brown also assumed that with 82 members out of the 181 members in the new House of Commons, his party, the Reform Party, would dominate the new national politics. Actually, it didn't work out that way. For most of the next 30 years, the Conservatives would dominate federal politics, primarily because of their strong base in Quebec. And the Reformers in Ontario then would take up the cause of provincial rights. Autonomy became their new cry instead of justice. And Brown and Mowat had to reinterpret what they had said and done at the Quebec Conference. The second problem that Romney has 
to confront are the decisions enshrined in the Quebec resolutions and ultimately in the British North America Act. Not only was the list of powers given to the national government extensive, but the Fathers of Confederation were determined to avoid what they saw as the major flaw in the American federal system, the decision to give residual powers to the states by giving those powers to the federal government. The federal government was also given control over indirect taxation, the major source of government revenue in the 19th century. And I don't think historians have grasped the significance of that as, as they should. If you don't give a government any money, there's bloody little they can do. And the governments after Confederation, except for Ottawa, were given bloody little money. By giving, uh, the federal government also given control over indirect taxation, the major source of government revenue in the 19th century, and the power to appoint the lieutenant governors of the provinces and the members of the Senate, the upper house, and even the power to veto provincial legislation. In Canada, unlike the United States, provincial judges would be appointed by the federal government, criminal law would be the same across the country, and only the federal government would have the power to enact militia law and call out troops to maintain order in an emergency. Now Creighton, undoubtedly, he was usually the bugbear of everybody, Creighton undoubtedly overstated the centralist's case when he declared that the provinces had been designed in 1864 to function, in quote, in much the same way as municipalities, retaining only some dim family resemblance to the vanished provincial governments of the past. Although we have to remember, Creighton worked on the Raoul Sirwa Commission on the financial side, and he understood, I think, perhaps much more clearly than most of the people who criticize him, the implications of the financial arrangements that had been agreed at the Quebec conference. But at any rate, I think he overstated it. Both Morton and Wade admitted that there was some ambiguity in the Quebec resolutions and a degree of tension between those favoring centralization and those who wanted a looser federal union. But even Morton and Wade and everybody else in the 1960s agreed that the clear intention of the Fathers of Confederation was to avoid what they saw as the defects of the American federal system and to create a strong national government. Of course there was a tradition of localism in Upper Canada, but as Elwood Jones has pointed out, the timing and achievement of Confederation rested, quote, more upon external pressures than upon localism, and the most significant of those pressures was the American Civil War. The Civil War did not create the desire for Confederation, certainly not in Upper Canada, the province with the highest proportion of British immigrants and their children, and the colony likely to benefit the most from the consolidation of Canada's position in the West. At the Great Reform Convention of 1859, the idea of a confederation of the British North American colonies, of the Liberal Convention of 1859, the idea of a confederation of British North American colonies had widespread support among the delegates. While other nations are seeking unity, while the Italians are fighting for it, and the Germans sighing for it. Why should we not seek the formation of a national feeling in this part of British America, which must eventually take its place among the nations of the earth? So asked George Wilkes, who favored confederation as the first steps toward the creation of a nature, nation stretching from, from sea unto sea. I'm oh, sorry, it, the exact quote is from the eastern to the western sea. Brown made the same point in the Toronto Globe in 1863. The union of all British North America is not a question of gain with us. It is one of political prestige and nationality. The time may not be right at the moment, but we look forward to it as our destiny. In 1864, the time did seem to be right. What was needed was some external pressure that could turn the idea of confederation into practical politics. It was not the political crisis in the United Province of Canada, for that could have been resolved by a federal union of the two Canadas. It was, as the historians of the 1960s suggested, the crisis caused by the American Civil War. The American Civil War, Thomas Darcy McGree declared in 1864, is, quote, a true continental crisis. It is a Canadian crisis, as well as a Republican crisis. And we can no more escape from its consequences than we can throw up a Chinese wall of exclusion instead of the existing boundary lines. In a speech on 22nd June 1864, year after, he said, it's not yet right. Brown, justifying the formation of the Great Coalition, the group that would dominate the, at the various conferences and bring about Confederation, Brown stressed that, quote, had the circumstances in which we are placed been one whit less important, less serious, less threatening than they are, I could not have approached the honorable gentleman opposite with a, a view to these negotiations. 
bring about confederation. It was the present situation of the great nation alongside of us that had persuaded Brown to join with his political enemies in a coalition dedicated to bringing about confederation. Indeed, only a crisis of the magnitude of the American Civil War could have compelled British Americans to make the compromises and to take the political risks necessary to reach agreement at the Quebec Conference in October 1864. George Brown, a devout Protestant who believed in the separation of church and state and opposed separate schools for Catholics, and who had a well-earned reputation for being anti-French-Canadian, had to surrender some of his principles and worked with George Etienne Cartier, the leader of the French majority in Quebec, who strongly supported and insisted upon the rights of, separate, of Catholics to separate schools in Upper Canada as well as Lower Canada, something Brown had to swallow hard to accept. In fact, Cartier stood for everything Brown despised. Yet Cartier also had to make concessions, concessions on the issue of provincial autonomy, for which he would be very much criticized by more radical French-Canadian nationalists, and indeed the reason why he's not exactly a towering figure of popularity in Quebec today. There was no more, so that alliance between Brown and Cartier could not have happened if there hadn't been something driving them to it. There was also no more unlikely alliance than that between Thomas Darcy McGee, one of the political spokesmen for the Irish Catholic minority in Lower Canada, and Ogle Gowan, one of the leading Orangemen in Upper Canada. They were both Irish, but that's about all they had in common. But they were able to overcome their differences and find common ground in the goal of constructing, in McGee's words, a strong and autonomous Canada within the British Empire, counterbalancing the democratic tendencies of the New World. The maritime pro-Confederates also had to make substantial concessions and take even greater political risks. No one doubted that the United Province of Canada was going to benefit from Confederation. Not, it was not quite so clear in the Maritimes. And indeed, the terms offered to the maritime colonies by the Quebec resolutions were not particularly generous. An upper house appointed on the basis of sectional, not provincial equality, and consisting of members appointed for life by the federal government, was not very likely to be effective at protecting maritime interests against a majority in the House of Commons, which was elected on the basis of proportional representation. Certainly not as effective as the American Senate, all of which the Fathers of Confederation rejected at the Quebec Conference. And however much autonomy the provinces were to be given, the financial arrangements agreed upon at the Quebec Conference were bound to leave the maritime provincial governments dependent on handouts from the federal government. What is not surprising is, is that there was opposition to these terms, but that there was so much support for them. But the reason why the maritime delegates at Quebec had agreed to these terms, and the reason why so many maritimers were willing to accept them, was that they too were convinced that the American Civil War had changed the balance of power on the North American continent. The 1960s historians of Confederation certainly did not get everything right. They downplayed the darker side of the dream of a transcontinental nation, ignoring the impact Canadian imperial expansion would have upon the indigenous peoples of the West. But they were surely correct in arguing that North America's in the 1860s was, as Morton wrote, a continent in dissolution, and that the American Civil War played a critical role in pushing British Americans towards the creation of a new nation. <laughs>